1019. Uh, we often in um, All Souls, when we hit Advent, uh, we do what we don't really do the rest of the year. We, uh, we use what are known as the lectionary readings. Lectionary, just as you probably have guessed, um, comes from the Latin word to read, um, and uh, it's a set of readings that churches around the world, across quite a few different denominations, follow, actually most Sundays of the year. Um, but we don't. Uh, but we do, during Advent, we do tend to use those readings, partly because they're always great readings and they help us to, to think about the themes that Advent is meant to be about, partly because just for a few weeks of the year, it's a good way, as I said at the beginning of the service, of remembering that we're not just sort of flying our own little kite, doing our own little thing. We're part of a worldwide community of Christians across denominations around the world. And this is just one very little way of sort of remembering that we stand with them. And so today um, I'm going to read to you a little bit from Mark's Gospel, page 1019, Mark chapter 13. And the, the reading set for the first Sunday in Advent, well one of the readings, the Gospel reading set for the first Sunday in Advent, is taken from the, um, the sort of towards the end of Mark chapter 13, beginning to read at verse 24. The only problem sometimes with lectionary readings is they can be quite short and they sometimes sort of parachute into the middle of territory that is otherwise fairly unknown to us as a congregation. And so you start reading something and it makes very little sense on its own. So rather than starting to read at verse 24, what I want to do is just set a little bit of context by reading some of the verses from the beginning of chapter 13. I'd love to read it all, but I think A, we won't have time, and B, we'll get a bit lost in the middle of it all. But this at least will set the context. So let me wind back a little bit. If you just keep your finger there and turn back one page to page 1016, you'll find that this is part of um, a set of conversations and um, uh, teachings of Jesus that happen after Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for the last week of his life. We've had what we would know as Palm Sunday, um, beginning of chapter 11, called the Triumphal Entry. And most of chapter 11, 12, and 13 um, either takes place inside the temple or is about the temple. And particularly, it all begins with this um, odd thing at the beginning of verse 12 of chapter 11, page 1016, uh, which is about the fig tree. A fig tree used as a symbol of God's covenant people, the people that he'd chosen to be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles, to draw all people to himself. And Jesus stands in the temple, we'll come back to why that was important, and speaks of a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit, a fig tree that needs to be chopped down, a fig tree that needs uh, restarters, as it were, that needs to actually do what it was meant to do. And the temple seems right at the sort of heart of what that's about. So when we read these, these words in chapter 13, we're going to come to, they're done in that context, the context of Jesus in Jerusalem, right at the end of his life, either standing in or talking about the temple. And in the end, it has to do with what we've been talking about for the last two and a half months, uh, the covenant. God's public commitment of love, not just to you and me, but to all people, summed up in his covenant to his covenant people, ancient Israel. And that reminds us again and again that what God has done for us, we simply find ourselves incapable of responding to. We cannot fulfill our part of the covenant. And the question is, what is God going to do about it? Is God going to simply say, well, tough. You can't fulfill your part. That's your problem. 
And what we find that is that in Jesus, and this is the heart of the Christmas message, is that in Jesus, God steps into history. As it, as it were, he steps round to our side of the table with his covenant on the table between us. And God says, I have already fulfilled my part of the covenant, but in Jesus, I step into history to live the life that you cannot live, to die the death that you simply cannot face, and to give you the life that you could not win for yourself. And that's what these verses ultimately are about. So can I read to you from the beginning of chapter 13, just for a few verses, and then we'll skip to the actual reading for today. Page 1019. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, well, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pangs. And then skipping on to verse 24. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things that have happened. Heaven and earth, they will pass away. But my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. So like a man going away, he leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, and each one with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Uh, I don't know whether um, you've ever been to the Natural History Museum. I assume probably living in this part of the world, most of us have, maybe many times uh, if you've got kids. Um, Up a few floors, I seem to remember, is where it is. There is an earthquake section. Yeah, am I right? That's good. I'm just checking. I didn't dream this or just read it. Um, And it's got all sorts of things about how earthquakes happen and why they happen and the terrible effects of earthquakes. But it's also got an amazing room um, in which you stand on this sort of walkway um, inside um, a a pretend shop, I think, that's meant to look like it's in Japan. And um, uh, every few minutes it sets off 
the sort of feeling of being in an earthquake and gradually the sort of rumbling happens and things fall off shelves and you hold on to the sides and the TV flickers and you, the CCTV shows actual footage from inside a, um, a little corner shop um, in Japan during an earthquake. And despite the fact that you know that it's computer controlled and it's been done thousands of times before and it's all pretend, it is still slightly unnerving to stand there with the, the ground shaking under your feet and things falling off shelves and seeing the actual footage from a real earthquake. And never having been in an earthquake, I have to take my friend's um, uh, word for it that if you are in one, there is nothing quite so unnerving, even if you know you're going to be okay, as that which we take most for granted in life. The most just natural thing in the world is to assume that the, 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 the ground under your feet is solid to find that the ground underneath your feet is not quite as solid as you thought it was it is huge. To say it's unsettling is a huge understatement. The psychological effects on people are, are enormous. Even if they're not hit by falling masonry, even if they're not um, hurt somehow in the process of gas mains and water mains blowing or, or by the after effects, actually simply that sense of the world is not as solid as I once thought it was has a huge impact. So no surprise then that Jesus uses as one of his illustrations in the midst of these words to his disciples and for us today, the illustration of earthquakes alongside famines and wars and a little bit later on in the bit I didn't read, persecutions and torture. You see, he's looking at his friends, the disciples, and knowing that an earthquake, earthquake is about to hit them of which they have no idea and for which they are utterly unprepared. Something is going to happen to them which will so rock the foundations of their whole worldview that Jesus looks at them and fears for them. And the thing is, it wasn't simply Jesus' friends then and there 2,000 years ago that are in danger of what happens to us when the earth beneath our feet rocks and crumbles. It's all of us as followers of Jesus. The thing is that all of us have those things in our lives that without even thinking about it, we put the whole weight of our lives on. We stand on as if there is no chance of the earth moving from beneath our feet. It may be simply the money in our bank account, if you're feeling reasonably well off, if you, maybe you've always been well off. It may even cross your minds that something could happen, that that money could be gone or spent or worthless as has happened in different societies and different points in the world. Maybe it never occurs to you that your health could ever fail you. If you've always been healthy throughout your life and fit and well, never even consider the possibility that that particular bit of rock you stand on of feeling well and healthy and would ever depart. Maybe your family, maybe your career, maybe how people see you, your status in society, the place you have in your community. I wonder what it is that you most stand on. That thing that you go back to when the rest of life feels like it's falling apart and you subconsciously, uh, effectively say to yourself, well, at least I've got this. You might never articulate it out loud, but that sense of, well, this is okay. I'm standing here. Now, here's the thing. This is what makes sense of Jesus' words about the temple. Because for Jesus' friends and for God's people, ancient Israel... The rock on which they stood more than anything else could be summed up in this building, the temple. Because the temple for them wasn't simply a building, 
it represented security. Just as much as any of the things I've just mentioned might represent security for us. The temple represented, for example, that most fundamental thing of all, that they belonged to God. They were God's people. Do you remember last week we were talking about the fact that in covenant, God said to his people, his ancient people, ancient Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heart of the covenant. I commit covenant my love towards you. I simply look for you to love me in return and to show that love to the rest of the world that they will be drawn into knowing me. And as a symbol, not just a symbol, but a seal of that promise, of that identity, he gave them a temple. Now that seems really odd to us. A sort of religious building, it's just a religious building. But this wasn't just a religious building, this was the building. This was the place that stretched back to Solomon's day, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before them, that represented God's promise to be with them. You see, in the temple, there was a room right at its heart called the Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies represented God's footprint on earth. It reminded them that God had promised never to depart them, never to leave them, never to forsake them. So the temple represented God's choosing of them, his covenant towards them, his presence with them. It also had within it the sacrificial system that reminded them that God was a forgiving God who decided not to hold against them the things that they did wrong, but gave them a way by which they could remember that God paid the price for the things that they uh, turned their backs on him over. Now you see, what we often forget is that when Jesus came... He came into a people that were themselves um, in a a very uh, perilous state. Their whole world had already been rocked many times over the previous 100, 200 years. In fact, over the previous four or 500 years, because this little nation of Israel was basically kicked backwards and forwards like a little football across the geopolitics of five, six, seven, eight hundred years between the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians and now the Romans. And the Romans had come in as an occupying force we tend to think of the Romans in quite positive fashion because we read Asterix. But actually the Romans were a, uh, a brutal and efficient occupation machine. They brooked no, no opposition and no compromise. They came in at the point of a spear and with ruthless efficiency crucified and killed those who disagreed with them. They were occupied. The one thing they had left. They didn't, even, they didn't have a king anymore because the king had been put in place was a puppet king who belonged to the Romans. They didn't properly have even a sort of religious leadership because they had so uh, compromised with the, the leaders. What they did have was this building and the city in which it stood. That was what reminded them that life's okay because we've still got this. So you and I can stand fairly and squarely in the, in the shoes of Jesus' friends where they're standing in that temple and they say to Jesus, this, and they must have thought later on, gosh, what a dumb thing to say to Jesus. But they're standing in the middle of the temple and they go, look, Jesus, what massive stones. You know those things later on when you replay conversations with somebody who's really bright and you think, gosh, I sounded really dumb. Well, this is that sort of thing. You know, gosh, what massive stones. You think? What an amazing building. Uh-huh. This is it. This is the building. But actually, they're trying to say to Jesus, we're okay, aren't we? All this kerfuffle over the triumphal entry, all the rumours about the Romans not liking you, all your hints and and promises about you dying. We're okay, aren't we? The the temple's here. Massive stones. Nobody's ever going to knock that down. Jesus has two big tasks at hand. 
He needs to tell them in advance not to rely anymore on the temple or on Jerusalem or on a religious elite or on a method of government or on even being God's ancient people. They have to rely instead on him. And he needs to get them to see that one of the ways in which that's going to play out is that the temple itself will be destroyed. Because just 36, 37 years later, in AD 69, AD 70, that is what happened. Just just 35 or so years after Jesus said these words, Titus uh, marched into Jerusalem having besieged it. Terrible siege. uh, appalling stories told by Josephus, the the first century um, Jewish historian, just just barbaric and awful. Um, It makes you think of actually of the stories coming out of Syria, very much. Those were what was going on in Jerusalem under the siege, people just literally starving, terrible stories going on in there. And then they marched into the temple. They set up an image of the emperor this, uh, um, a little bit in the bit I didn't read, it talks about a, um, a sort of a, an abomination that will be set up in the temple. Maybe that was, that was what it was. This, this emperor's image set up as a god to be worshipped in the midst of their temple. And the temple itself effectively raised to the ground. There's one wall left, the so-called western wall that you can still see today. The rest, gone. So how is Jesus going to help them? Well, the first thing that Jesus does, and we need to hear these words too, the first thing that Jesus needs them and us to remember and to realise is that the things that we rely on will one day pass away. Those are his words towards the end of the passage, aren't they? Or or maybe um, partway through, verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away. One day our health will fail us. One day, um, even the structures of society that we love so much, the history tells us, Nothing lasts forever. Uh, One day the things that we hold most dear may slip through our fingers. And Jesus doesn't want us to view those things as the end of everything. He says that is the story of history. That humanity in turning its backs on God have entered into a broken world. This world is not the way it's meant to be. Bad things do happen to good, loving, godly people. That's how the world is. You need to know in advance that that doesn't mean that somehow God has taken his wheel, hands off the steering wheel and this road somehow is leading to destruction and ruin. He's not trying to make us depressed and sad and terrified of the future. He's actually trying to reassure us when you hear these words. He says, there will be wars and rumours of wars, but don't worry. It doesn't mean it's all over. It doesn't mean that you are doomed. He's saying, just know that's the way the world is. But there is a second thing, and and perhaps even more importantly, that's going on here. That that if we realise that all of the things on which we stand are are finite and can pass away, then we ought to be looking for somewhere else to put our feet. If somebody came to you and said, where you're standing right now is going to be blown apart, then you move. You don't just stand there going, well, we'll see what happens then, shall we? You run. You run the other direction. You find somewhere that isn't in danger. You find somewhere to stand that will not pass away. And what Jesus was saying to his disciples wasn't, no, it's a hateful building. You should never have enjoyed it. He wasn't saying there is no value in Jerusalem, no value in the temple, no value in any of the things that we love. Of course there's value. They're gifts from God. It would be a a blasphemous lie to say these things that our families 
But what's in our bank account, our careers, that our gifts, our skills, our health, that they're not things to be enjoyed? Of course they are. They're gifts from our Heavenly Father. The point is that we're not to imagine they are the final place that we rest our feet, as if that's what is going to support us through life. No, says Jesus. There is one thing that will not pass away. Verse 31, my words will not pass away. He doesn't just mean the things he said. He is saying he himself, God come to be with us, the one who made heaven and earth, the one in whom heaven and earth is held together, the one who one day, and this is where he lands it, the one who one day will return to draw a line under history and to remake heaven and earth in such a way that they will never pass away. Yes, you can stand firmly on me. That was, that's what he's saying. The temple may well be destroyed, says Jesus, because actually it represents the old. It represents that which could never fulfill your side of the covenant. But there is that which will never pass away. My words, my love, my promises for you. And that's why having talked about the destruction of the temple, that's why having talked about this terrible persecution that will come of Christians during the time of Nero and um, uh, Caligula and so on, He then finishes by saying, verse 32, he starts talking about the day and the hour, which his hearers would have known was talking about the day when God would draw a line under all things, would bring things to an end. And he says, look, I don't even know the time when that will happen, but it will come. And when it comes, you need to be ready. And how do you need to be ready? Well, by standing in the right place. That's how. By having your life built on that which on that day will be revealed as not, being, not passing away. On building our lives on the thing that on that day, on the end of all things, will be shown to be the rock on which life was meant to be built. On the words and love and promises of Jesus. I mean, the wonderful thing is, in the meantime, we get to enjoy all these other great gifts. The gift of family and of friends and of health and of financial resources and good food and of Christmas to look forward to and of a church to belong to and a a warm-ish building to be in. All of those good gifts. But none of them, not one of them, is to build our lives on finally. Because they will pass away. But my word, says Jesus, will never pass away. And at Advent, as we stand between his first coming, as Jesus stepped to our side of the covenant to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to guarantee for us a future in him, and as we stand between then and his second coming, when he will return to draw a line under history and to remake heaven and earth in a way that will never pass away, we rely on him. We enjoy what we have now, but we build our lives on that which will never pass away. Let's pause for a moment of quiet. Let's maybe close our eyes to to just think about those things on which we build our lives.